If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, covering politics here in D.C. This week, we wanted to examine, from a Republican perspective, whether Democrats are really headed for a good election in November. We wanted to run that premise by Josh Holmes, former chief of staff to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has helped orchestrate some expectation-defying results on the Senate map in years past. <laughs> he, he certainly has. Then we'll chat with Jim Morrow from the Charlotte Observer. Jim will be in Austin this week for an RNC meeting that'll determine whether Charlotte will be the next host for the GOP convention. We here at McClatchy are pro-McClatchy markets hosting conventions, but all of these deliberations will come as the city faces protests from people who don't want Charlotte to be the hub for a Republican convention. Here's Mayor V. Lyles on the bid. So we may not share the same opinions, but we do value diversity acceptance, and that includes diversity of thought. We'll hear what Jim has to say about the tense decision. Okay, Andrea, you ready? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared to fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Hey, so Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So we wanted to have you on because I think, especially recently, there's been this idea that's built into every one of our episodes that Democrats are going to have a good year in 2018, and I think for good reason. I think there are a lot of factors you can look at that would suggest, point toward the idea that Democrats are going to gain seats in the House in particular. But we in this business have learned recently that elections don't always go the way we think they're going to go. I'd say that's probably true of the larger political community as well. So we wanted to, to test the idea, right? And who better to test that idea with uh, than Josh, a former chief of staff for Mitch McConnell, a top Republican strategist. So, Josh, explain to us why are we wrong? <laughs> why are we wrong? Why, why do you think, in, in your own words, why are Republicans going to have a better year in 2018 than many people expect right now. Well, I, you know, I think where people start to make mistakes in terms of prognosticating what's going to happen is that they get carried away with national narratives and they look less about what this actual structure of the election is going to be. And this one is really unique for a couple of, of big reasons. One is just the Senate map. The number of Democrats that are up in red states that President Trump carried in 2016, not just by an eyelash, but by double digits, is truly extraordinary. I think there's something, a stat somewhere that's, you know, no party has had this many opposite seat-held vulnerabilities since the administration of Herbert Hoover. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it does illustrate basically the challenges that Senate Democrats here have in that you've got a whole host of issues that play largely to Democrat favor on the national scope. But in states like North Dakota, West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, they play out much differently than they do along the coasts. And so those, those discussions may skew one way on a national level, skew almost the exact opposite for Senate Democrats. Give us an example of one. Well, if you look at the way that they're prosecuting the argument against Judge Kavanaugh in, in particular, the first thing that everybody did is race out and make this as quickly as possible about Roe v. Wade. 
on a national basis for Democrats, that makes a ton of sense. In Democrat strongholds along the coasts, that makes a ton of sense. And maybe even in the House map in certain certain in districts. suburban districts, okay. it may make yeah. a ton of sense. In North Dakota, in West Virginia, in Indiana, that's about the dumbest possible thing that you could come up with. It, it is a far under 50% proposition. They are choosing to prosecute that case in a way that hurts Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin, probably Claire McCaskill, and maybe even John Tester in a way that, that they didn't need to do that, right? So I think the structure of the Senate elections is one reason why this is not going to be a quote-unquote wave election. I do have some concern with the same structural issues on the House for Republicans maintaining the majority, not in that the environment is so bad that they can't play to a draw here. My concern is the retirements. Mm-hmm. Swing districts, meaning districts that are decided by 5% or less on both sides, when a wave election cuts against him, the incumbent still has a 59% chance of holding on to that seat. Now, if that incumbent retires, his or her party only has a 6% chance. It's a pretty dramatic difference. A huge difference, <laughs> right? And if you look at the sheer number of retirements that we've had in those competitive districts in the House, I think before you start looking at the environment, you could conclude pretty easily that Republicans are in a tough spot. So when you have maps that are just complete opposites of each other like that, where do you see some themes that Republicans can work with that uh, work for both? Well, almost everything that works for President Trump also works for Senate Republicans in 2018. And almost everything that works for President Trump and Senate Republicans doesn't work for vulnerable House incumbents. And so there is a dichotomy there. And you see that the House leadership trying to bridge some of that with what they've been doing on immigration, for example, by giving folks in the middle of their conference a voice to try to explain how they're different from the rest of of their conference. But I do think there are some unifying themes. And one one of them that you have to always come back to if you're a Republican is Democrats cannot help themselves but try to inject their view into an environment that's going their way, right? If they were to just sit on the sidelines and be quiet, I think they'd have an awful lot better chance at at capitalizing on the environment. But you see the sort of Maxine Waters type point of view all of a sudden start making national news, and you get a more radical element of the Democratic Party that is on the front page of every newspaper and the lead of every newscast. That in and of itself mitigates an awful lot of environmental problems that Republicans face. Why, why would that be? I mean, explain that a little bit more. Because it's just so far out of the mainstream, Alex. Mm-hmm. I, I think the idea to your average American that you're sitting there, you know, you, you don't live and eat and sleep this stuff on a day-to-day basis. You're taking your kids to baseball and softball games and, you know, you're paying attention and kind of on the edges of, of all of this. And you see one party that seems to be rallying around something that is extremely hard to identify with, like abolish ICE. Right. I don't know where most most people, good people have huge disagreements on the issue of immigration. But the thing where I think probably 90 percent of the country is, is sort of aligned on is the idea that you should have some border security and the idea that you just abolish ICE in that you have full government run health care and that you repeal all the tax cuts. And I mean, all, all, what we're talking about is stuff that pushes Democrats out of the favorable wind of a midterm and into creating their own vulnerabilities. 
I mean, you mentioned North Dakota, Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp is running for re-election there. I mean, you think that these kind of positions from Democratic activists affect her because she would say, well, I don't favor abolish ICE. I don't support a single-payer health care. The voters in North Dakota know me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How would you push back against that? Because that, that is true of a lot of the Democratic senators running for re-election, even though they're in deeply conservative states. I mean, the problem that you have when you're out of power is that there's no clear leader of your party. And therefore, there's a whole bunch of diffuse voices, but likely the loudest one wins, right? And you you don't have to go back very far to see how that affected Republicans. And particularly in the 2010-2012 cycle, and into 2013, actually, when the whole repeal Obamacare, defund Obamacare debate was, was happening, the loudest voice wins. And it tends to put an imprint on the party as a whole, regardless of whether or not it has been adopted by the candidate in question. A good example is, like, look how Todd Akin's candidacy in Missouri in 2012 colored the campaign of somebody like Scott Brown in sure. Massachusetts. I mean, it, it made them have to answer to a whole set of ideals that, frankly, even the discussion itself hurts their campaign. And I think that's where folks like Heidi Hyde can't find themselves right now. Well, I'm glad you brought up healthcare. We've been kicking around this idea sort of that now Democrats are embracing what it just is a politically easy argument to make on healthcare versus selling something like tax reform, which is a historically difficult thing to sell to voters. How is that working out? I mean, my, my view on voting economics and pocketbooks is pretty simple. There, there's nobody who votes on the hypothetical or the ideological implication of the economy, whether it's health care, tax cuts, or anything else. They vote their own pocketbook, right? So if you see a significant difference in your paycheck, you probably have a, a reaction to that. If you see your job uh, as being tougher to retain, your upward mobility being more difficult to achieve, and your family's economic security is more in question, you will react to that, and you will, you will vote accordingly. But I think what you've seen with the tax cuts in particular is the economy's doing great. And I think if you look at the numbers pertaining to like consumer confidence or confidence in the economy and upward mobility of each individual American family, it's pretty high. And in comparison to the last eight years, it's really high. And so I think the tax cuts are basically selling themselves, regardless of whether we keep that on the front page of the newspaper or not. Would you keep it in a, in a TV ad for a candidate? Would you say that they should campaign explicitly on the tax cuts? In the right districts, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think tax cuts in particular have a extremely valuable function in suburban House districts, okay. where you see a lot of those voters that are sort of migrating away from President Trump for a variety of different reasons. They actually gravitate back towards accomplishments that they can understand affecting their community and their their community's economy. Mm-hmm. And I think tax cuts are, play a valuable role there. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing by any stretch of the imagination. But health care is, is one of those things, like if you look back at the success Republicans had on Obamacare, it wasn't just an ideological either government runs health care or we have a private system running healthcare, where this began to become very dangerous for Democrats is when you tell your average American family that the healthcare you have and that your kids are enrolled in and the doctor that they see is all in jeopardy because we've changed the system. I mean, because that's when you talk to any Democratic strategist, House or even Senate, healthcare is the first thing they mention, Mm -hmm. that the attempted repeal, even if it was not passed in the law, it went far enough that it gave them all the ammunition they need for the midterm elections, whether it's something like questioning pre-existing conditions or the quote-unquote age tax, some of which has already appeared in some of their ads. Are you just skeptical that that strategy 
is a good one, a sound one. Well, I wonder how deep they've looked in the cross tabs, right? Not mm-hmm. to get too technical, but part of the well, reason... Well, we can get technical yeah, yeah, on yeah, a podcast. Yeah, yeah, you get got technical. some numbers? I yeah. mean, p- part of the reason why I think that argument is not necessarily a good one and that the numbers fail to show the full story is that when you ask the question about how Republicans have handled uh, health care, you get an inordinately large sample of the conservative community that, that says... They hate it. Mm-hmm. And it is a rural, largely white, largely middle, lower income demographic that the Democrats took a bath on in 2016. And they've been working ever since to try to retain that demographic in some of these swing states. The problem is they're disagreeing for very different reasons than Democrats want them to disagree. It's not that they say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we didn't get more government in our health care. And what I really wanted was more Obamacare and more of a single payer option. That's not what they're saying. These folks have been all about and riding the train of repeal Obamacare since 2010. And they see the failure to do that as a fundamental failure of the promise that was made to them over several cycles. So I think those top lines are way out of whack. Let's talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court nominee and where that factors into this. Well, I think it's a huge deal for Senate Republicans because you've got a high-profile fight over a value proposition about a number of issues culturally and economically that in the states that matter in 2018 are extremely significant. And there are a lot of different ways to water down a message if you're Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Donnelly to sort of affect what people view of their legislative record. But in the end, you're going to have a party that is prosecuting the case against a, a extremely well-qualified nominee on issues that basically don't relate to their constituency. And regardless, at the end of the day, I think even if they end up voting yes, I think a three-month debate within five weeks of the election, if this is the timeline that has been suggested actually plays out, is extraordinarily damaging because it informs their voters in North Dakota, West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, Montana, it, it informs them exactly where their party stands on a whole bunch of issues that run contrary to the vast majority of voters in those states. And you're saying, and this gets back to something you mentioned earlier, it's not just about how the individual senators react, like Joe Donnelly in Indiana. It would be how the broader Democratic Party would react. And it already has in some cases with Roe v. Wade. You're going to get a months-long battle that reminds at, at probably the most politically opportune yeah. time, right? I mean, the timing of this is it would be pretty good for the the GOP. Yeah, I mean, because you can't, you just can't surf a wave of other issues when you have this fundamental litmus test question five weeks before your own election. No question, the Democratic base is not going to allow any of those senators to come out and say they're with with Judge Kavanaugh's nomination until the last, you know, week, two weeks of this process. But you will have had a month and a half, two months of just hardcore messaging going into their states about the choice that they're facing here, and their opponents are pretty clear. Their opponents are going to be unconflicted about this. Particularly, this has a big impact in Missouri, very big impact in Missouri. You're singling out Missouri here. Yeah. I think it has a very big impact in Missouri because you see Josh Hawley dealing with and litigating an issue that he's extraordinarily comfortable with. Then you look at who Claire McCaskill has voted for, for justices, and who she's voted for for judges. She supported judges who want the federal government to provide illegal immigrant teenagers abortion. She's voted for judges. And the, the biggest challenge that candidates have who have not run on a federal level before is navigating a bunch of federal issues. 
And you can always tell when you get into an area of comfortability because they begin sort of success begins success and they begin to prosecute an argument a little bit more aggressively. And you've now watched in the last week and a half Josh Hawley much more aggressive in prosecuting the case against Claire McCaskill as he has been at any point in this election. I want to touch on something we, we talked a little bit about earlier, the economy, because I think this is one of the, the issues that really fascinates me. You have an economy that public opinion polls would show people think is growing. It's certainly doing better than it has recently. There is some evidence that uh, wage growth maybe isn't keeping up with inflation this year, which would kind of get back to the, the long concerns about the economy that might be doing well at the top. It's not doing as well for the average day worker. But it, it sounds like you're willing to bet that the state of things now is a, is a big plus for the GOP? Oh, no question. I mean, look, I, I quibble a little bit with the, the wage data that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think from all sort of metrics that one uses to determine whether Americans feel more confident in the economy and their position in the economy, this mm-hmm. is about as good as it's been since, you know, gosh, early 2000s. Because that's been like the fundamental problem with the economy, right? Particularly on, a, on like a political totally. front that people just don't feel. And that, that has been the case pretty much this entire century. And an awful lot of that at its core is about job security. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen in the unemployment rate, but more importantly, sort of the underemployment, is, is that Americans feel more comfortable about their holding their job and mm-hmm. about their own upward mobility and our economy's ability to sustain itself, that we're not sitting at another fiscal cliff or something mm-hmm. that they're going to be out of house and home. They feel more stable about it. And so... I think Republicans are just going to have to keep coming back to that well over time and again to try to prosecute their case as to why their governing majorities are important to keep. That's a stump speech and ads and everything. That's talk about the economy. Yeah, there's just no question because, I mean, look, Carville was right. It is the economy stupid. Ultimately, people have a lot of views about a lot of different things, but there is no more powerful voting behavior than your own pocketbook. It never will be any different. But comfortable and confident isn't where you want your base, right? That doesn't, that's not a voting base of people, people who are motivated or terrified, right? You're right. No, that's, that's important. I think there's a difference between winning elections in the middle and making sure that you've got as revved up a base as the opponents do. And that's the trick. Actually, you know, it's the, it's the funny thing. Everybody thinks that, that President Trump is some kind of a drag on the Republican Party. In this case, he's just the essential ingredient because you, you have a base that will not turn out at the same levels that it did in 2016 or 2014 or or 2012 even without him. And in particular, there are a couple of issues that are extremely motivating. One is immigration, which we've been having this big discussion about. And in the states, again, in 2018, that matter to Senate Republicans, very, very important issue to discuss mobilizes Republican voters. The second piece is, is, ironically enough, is this whole investigation. And what the president is doing by continuing to discuss the investigation and the quote-unquote witch hunt, particularly on primetime and Fox, is doing more to mobilize base voters than any legislative issue that we've seen. You think the Russian investigation is a political positive? I think for base voters, I mean, if you're talking about for base voters, mm-hmm. what, what are, you can lose an election a million different ways. But the one that you're absolutely guaranteed to lose is if your people stay home. 
And I think the danger that both parties have had in the first presidential midterm is this sort of lackadaisical approach that we've got everything we need here. We don't really need to show it's up. certainly true of Democrats in 2010. No, no, no it would, question. It would be a classic case of that. Uh, no no question. But I think if you go back to 06 with Republicans, it's obviously the second midterm for President Bush, but that was very similar. You saw the middle trend away from Republicans and the, the home base never showed. All right. So, Josh, here, here's what I have. I've, I've been, been taking notes during the interview, and here would be seemingly the, the case for why the GOP is going to do better than maybe most expected. Democrats are ideologically and maybe temperamentally off-putting, this new kind of activist-driven Democratic Party. Party's health care attacks just are, are, are just not nearly as effective as the party thinks. Obviously, the map is, is good for the GOP. No one would dispute that, particularly in the Senate. Then you have the Supreme Court battle. The economy is doing well. People are feeling for the first time, maybe this century, people are feeling okay about their jobs. And they will credit that, the GOP, with that. And then, of course, that Trump can motivate the base. So let me, let me flip it around on you. After all that said, what worries you the most about the midterm elections? What worries me the most is what we saw play out in all these special elections, which is just the overheated turnout machine of Democrats at this point in, in one piece. And the second piece of that is their ability to raise more money than we've ever seen in any party in modern history. In the most recent fundraising reports, I mean, it's pretty astounding. I think Swamping. National Journal Hotline, who Andrew and I both used to work for, showed it was something like 50-something, more than 50 Democratic challengers have outraised their incumbents. I don't think I've ever seen Never. anything remotely like that. Never. Before. I mean, there there is more money going to Democrats on every level than we've seen either party have an advantage in probably my lifetime. I mean, it, it is so overwhelming and significant. You look at the candidate level, which you just mentioned, 50-plus in, uh, incumbents being outraised by their uh, challengers. You, in the, the committees, same thing, if not worse, more acute. And then even let, if you look at the super PAC side of things, I mean, you have Michael Bloomberg, for goodness sakes, pledge $80 million for House Democratic efforts. I mean, th- this kind of money it, advantage is totally unprecedented. I don't exactly know how that's going to play out, because if you look at in 2016 how it played out, it certainly wasn't to the advantage of Hillary Clinton. It was not, no. But, I mean, you can't ignore that either. I mean, their weight of message in every one of these races is going to dwarf the weight of message from Republicans, so they've got to be extremely smart about how they utilize that. Is there any way that the Republicans can catch up? I think I think it's a fait accompli in terms of the overall spending numbers. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think no matter what Republicans do to try to get back in the game, they're going to end up being outspent here. I think they can mitigate some of the advantage that's been um, developing over the last few months, but it's still that advantage is going to be there. Where Republicans actually have advantage here, again, I keep going back, President Trump's ability for earned media to control the narrative. What he's talking about, I mean, I don't care. You could be up with uh, 10 million points of healthcare messaging from now until the election. None of that matters if President Trump doesn't utter the word healthcare. None of it. Because it just doesn't show up. It just doesn't. He controls the conversation in a way that we have not seen a president control the conversation. Now, that cuts both ways for, for Republicans, too. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, not always a great thing. They can't control no. it either. Right. You know, right. and it's not necessarily a guided missile in a lot of ways that this that what he does is what he does. And that's one of the reasons why people find, find him compelling, because he's not just a predictable partisan on some of these things. But he does hold the biggest microphone in town and he has the ability of, of evening out some of that disparity. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Andrea, do you think that Josh has a point that his party is going to do a little bit better in November than we think? 
Josh has probably rolled his eyes at the two of us in our past careers <laughs> so many times. Many times, I would I would think. If he says it, I believe it. So we want to keep the discussion of the Republican Party going, and we want to do that by bringing in Jim Morrill from the Charlotte Observer. Jim is coming to us from the Charlotte Observer newsroom. So if you hear things in the background, that's because that's reporters hard at work, McClatchy reporters hard at work right now. Jim, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So, look, uh, you're, you're going to the, the RNC in Austin later this week. It's going to be the sort of the, the beating heart of the Republican Party for the, the next few days. I have to imagine there's going to be some discussion of President Trump's press conference and summit. I guess I put summit in air quotes there with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. We have both made some mistakes. I think that the the probe is a disaster for our country. I think it's kept us apart. It's kept us separated. There was no collusion at all. Uh, everybody knows it. Look, as our colleague Kenny Glick, frequent guest on this show, has pointed out, this is Donald Trump's party, right? There's no question where the GOP stands. That said, uh, there was some criticism even from Republicans after this this press conference. Even someone like Newt Gingrich was critical of, of the president's performance. Jim, and I, and I guess I want to ask you, I mean, what do you expect to find when you're at the RNC the next few days? Do you think that there are going to be a lot of Republican members who are going to be willing to criticize Donald Trump over this or not really? I don't think there's going to be a lot of people that are willing to publicly criticize him. I think there may be more people who, if asked, would defend the, the intelligence services. You know, we saw it from our North Carolina senators yesterday after the press conference. Senator Burr, who of course heads the intelligence committee, put out a pr- pretty forceful statement in defense of the intelligence community and their findings. And Senator Tillis did the same. I, I think that's what you would find. Uh, you know, I went to the why this morning and heard people talking about it who don't usually talk about this stuff. But um, so I'd be hard pressed to find anybody uh, actually defending the president, even in Austin at the Republican National Committee. I mean, this seems like maybe the elusive issue that has actually broken through to the broader public. I think so. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, the people who reported the news were so forceful in their descriptions of it, from Anderson Cooper to Chris Cuomo and even to Fox News. And, you know, some some of the uh, Republican members of Congress, like Senator McCain and, and Senator Flake, who, who aren't running again, were, were very forceful about it. I thought it was shameful. And uh, I never thought I'd see an American president uh, throw the intelligence community under the bus like that. So it's not a good day for the country. So I think it's something that people just can't ignore. Well, I guess also on the agenda in Austin this week is uh, the potential for the RNC meeting in Charlotte. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and and why Charlotte? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons uh, why Charlotte. Number one is that the city hosted the Democratic National Convention in in 2012 and, and did what's, I think, generally considered a pretty fair job of it and a pretty good job. And uh, the second reason is that there's not a lot of other contenders for the convention. Uh, Las Vegas is mentioned, but it seems like kind of a half-hearted bid by Las Vegas. They're not even sure where the venue would be for it. 
and I think more cities have turned it down than really applied for this time. When you look back at 2016 in Cleveland, there were at least eight contenders, eight finalists, and then that was narrowed down to four, and then Cleveland got it. But I, I just don't think the bidding was quite as competitive uh, this year. And, you know, I think that's reflected in the divisions here in Charlotte. They, they had a city council vote yesterday. A dramatic city council vote. <laughs> a, yes, a dramatic vote uh, that lasted, you know, there was a two-hour public hearing and an hour-long council meeting about it. And in the end, they approved the convention coming by they, technically the contracts that they would have to sign by a single vote. I mean, you have obviously this interesting dynamic, and I really wanted to dive into this with you. Obviously, you host conventions like this in cities, and just as obviously cities are democratic territory right now, um, including in Charlotte. And not so, Fort Worth, but and, go ahead. <laughs> not, not Fort Worth. So you you have this this natural tension. Jim, what were the proponents of this saying? I, I take it that there was, was this mostly an economic case? I mean, uh, you know, the Charlotte had hosted Democrats in 2012. Clearly, people seem to think that went well enough uh, for them to, to host another one of these. Uh, yeah, definitely. Economics played a big part of it. And uh, in this two-hour public hearing they had yesterday, they had over 100 people come and speak pro and con. And, and a lot of the people that were pro it, pro uh, the convention coming were businessmen. You know, the, the restaurant and hospitality industry was a big proponent. But I think, I think more than that, it was the Democratic mayor who said it's good for the city. I mean, there's an economic impact to all this, and, uh, you know, that helps a lot of people. But I'll tell you what, you know, this it was one of the most contentious votes I've seen here in a long, long time, and uh, it turned Democrats against Democrats. What, what, what were the, the opponents of this, uh, of this saying? They, they were saying a lot of things, but it, it, for a lot of people, it came down to Donald Trump. One city council member who later spoke and voted against having the convention, said Trump was the avatar of white supremacy. You know, the word fascist was thrown around during the public hearing. There was just a lot of vitriol, and some of it got incredibly personal on social media between Democratic elected officials. People were saying, you know, they were concerned about the president and, and what he represents to a lot of people, but also to the prospect of, of violence and protest here. We talk a lot on this show about it being Trump's party now, but you brought up some interesting comments from North Carolina's Republican senators. Are there still inroads for Trump to make with North Carolina Republicans? You know, I think in North Carolina, like uh, across the country, I mean, he's very popular among many, most uh, majority of, of Republicans. It's it's the unaffiliated uh, and the conservative Democrats that he's got trouble with. You know, polls here show him in the low 40s uh, in terms of popularity and approval. So, you know, he's going to have to get Republicans out. I mean, it's, he's going to have to get his base out. And I, I think Republicans are looking to the convention to sort of charge things up for them. Yeah, Jim, North Carolina is always such a fascinating state politically. Maybe, unfortunately, you, you guys don't have a gubernatorial or a Senate race <laughs> there this election cycle. You do have a handful of competitive congressional races, or at least races that look like they might be getting more and more Competitive. Do you sense any nervousness uh, among Republicans that some of these seats, and to be clear, a lot of these seats should be safe Republican seats? You know, North Carolina 9, where Robert Pittenger I mean, lost his primary to Mark Harris. This is a seat that in any kind of neutral year, a Republican would win maybe with nary a challenge. Now he's looking at a, a very serious challenge from Democrat 
uh, Dan McCready, do you, do you sense any nervousness from Republicans there? Yeah, I think they are restless. I think about that. You know, there was a poll by a conservative group in Raleigh called the Civitas Institute, and they came out with a poll just a few days ago that showed McCready, the Democrat, with a seven-point lead in that race. And McCready's got a, always had a comfortable financial cushion in this race. I think the most recent report came out and showed him with uh, almost $2 million cash on hand. And Mark Harris, who, like you said, beat the incumbent uh, in the primary, has just a fraction of that, really. So I think they're worried about that. And they're worried about the 13th district, too, which is kind of north central North Carolina with Ted Budd as a Republican incumbent and Kathy Manning as a Democratic opponent who also has outraised him. Well, hey, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. Well, I think if we were going to ask Jim what his lightning round would be, you'd be pretty sure he'd say the city of Charlotte. That said, Andrea, why don't you identify uh, one fact or mover or shaker who our listeners should be paying attention to? All right. I want to use mine this week to circle back on something that we talked about last week in our show. Our guests talked about all of the ways that women's health issues could be coming up to the Supreme Court. Our brilliant colleague, Stuart Leavenworth, has a story about another case headed up to the Supreme Court called it a sleeper case. This one is aimed at rolling back the regulatory state, which uh, Margaret Russell told us was the real goal of the right on this in the new court. The case does so, however, by taking up the case of a convicted sex offender. It's a great story. You should check it out on our website. The case has some bigger implications for other government agencies like the EPA, but does so through some really tricky politics. Good shout out to Stu there. We like his work. We love his work. Stu's a great guy. Okay. Mine is The Last Weekend. The Last Weekend is this kind of unique coalition of liberal groups that have come together with the aim of drumming up volunteers for Democratic campaigns. But it's the timing that's really interesting. They want to get people to pledge to volunteer for campaigns in, quote, the last weekend. That's why it's called the last weekend of the election, uh, that Saturday before November 6th election. And the idea is that You know, it's not just enough for all of these super energized voters just to vote for the Democratic candidate. No, no, no. You need to do more than that this year. And you need to volunteer for a campaign and help convince others to make sure that they're going to vote. I don't really know. This is a very grassroots oriented effort. It's not steered by the DNC or the DCCC or anything. I don't really know if there's anything comparable that's happened in recent political history, but is yet another sign of not just the liberal energy, I think, but how organized that liberal energy uh, has been since Donald Trump's election. I'm glad that you clarified on the origins of that name, because I thought something worse was going to happen if this is the last weekend. Well, in in the Democrats' mind, something worse will happen uh, if they don't come out on top in November. Okay, Andrea, another good show. A pleasure doing this with you, as always. What do you think? Time for a vacation? Yeah. Next week, we're going to hand it over to our boss, Kristen Roberts. She is going to be interviewing Republican Congressman Carlos Curbelo from Central Park in New York City, talking about what else? The midterm election. At Aussie Fest, a music festival with Hillary Clinton as a guest. Yeah, exactly. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.